I'm Brian Granger. I'm a principal technical program manager on the SageMaker team in AWS, and I'm also one of the co-founders of Project Jupyter. And today I'm going to be talking about Project Jupyter, mostly focusing on the open source project. At the end, I'll talk some about uh, how we're using Jupyter in AWS, in SageMaker in particular, and then also on how we're contributing to and participating in the broader open source ecosystem around Project Jupyter. So uh, what is Project Jupyter? Jupyter exists to develop open source software, open standards, and services for interactive and reproducible computing. There's a lot to unpack here. And it, I will admit, this statement is quite abstract. And if you're sitting there wondering and you've never seen Jupyter before, okay, but what is it? I think that's a really good question. And I'm hoping that I'll answer that for you here in this talk. So Jupyter is a multi-stakeholder open source project. Uh, its flagship application is the Jupyter Notebook. The Jupyter Notebook came out in 2011, originally under the umbrella of the IPython project. IPython was an earlier terminal-based interactive shell for Python uh, that was started in 2001. IPython evolved. Uh, we released the IPython Notebook in 2011. And shortly after that, we realized that the architecture we had built would work for other programming languages. And so we began to support other programming languages. Uh, the first or the second language we supported was Julia, which was a, a new and emerging language at the time. And we quickly realized that the, the, the classic name of IPython really was confusing now that we supported a wide range of languages. So we launched Project Jupyter uh, a few years after uh, we came out with the notebook. And Jupyter continues on and now includes IPython uh, as the, the Python language kernel, as we would call it, or plugin uh, for Jupyter. So what is a Jupyter Notebook? Uh, a Jupyter Notebook is a document that includes live code, narrative text, equations, visualizations, uh, and in fact, I'll show you here today, even arbitrary custom user interfaces embedded in the documents. Here's an example of a Jupyter Notebook. Uh, you can see there, there's highlights there pointing out the, the text. Uh, the text that we support is Markdown, the math is LaTeX, there's live code in Python, uh, and then charts. Um, and so uh, I'll talk more about how we think about these uh, notebook documents here shortly. Today, there's over 100 different programming languages supported. The core Jupyter team maintains a small number of those kernels, uh, as I mentioned, uh, and then the open source community has, has built kernels in a wide range of different languages. Uh, Jupyter has become a, a very large open source project. Uh, we have over 500 contributors across over 100 different uh, GitHub repositories. Uh, the number of GitHub orgs we have, I've lost track. I think it's maybe in the six or seven range. And we're part of the NumFocus Foundation, along with a lot of other open source projects uh, that are active in the data science and machine learning space, such as NumPy, SciPy, Pandas, Matplotlib, uh, and so on. So who uses Jupyter and how? This is a great question, and it's really hard to answer. So I'll, I'll give you the list here and then talk a bit more about it. So students and teachers, data engineers, data scientists, re researchers, scientists, machine learning engineers or researchers, analysts. Uh, we have everyone from junior high students learning to program in Python using Jupyter, as well as PhDs and postdocs in machine learning doing their, their thesis using Jupyter. So it's a really broad audience using Jupyter for a wide range of things. Uh, when we first started working on this, data science and machine learning were not really a thing at the time. Uh, we were coming from the world of, of the physical scientists. I'm a trained physicist. I've been a physics professor uh, for the last 15 years. Obviously, the world of scientific computing has sort of become uh, pulled into this broader ecosystem of data science uh, and machine learning. And this is the world in which Jupyter lives. So anything where people are working interactively with code and data or simulation, and, and it spans all the different areas uh, that I've listed here. Jupyter has a large and diverse community. Uh, being an open source project, we don't have a way to track all the ways that people are installing and using Jupyter. We do know how many of you show up on our website, 
based on that and a couple other uh, metrics that we do have access to, such as the number of PIP packages installed and, and content packages, we know there's many millions of users uh, of Jupyter worldwide. Uh, I think 10 million is our sort of best guess, plus or minus a couple million. Uh, here's the website traffic uh, year to date on jupyter.org. Uh, the, the raw numbers are not the interesting thing here to me. It's the, the diversity in, in geographic representation here, right? So uh, it's U.S. and then a, a, a very wide range of countries. Uh, it's not sort of, uh, in the early days, it would have been U.S. and then Western Europe. Uh, it, it's very, very diverse. What's interesting about this is that uh, most of our team of developers are based in the U.S. and in Western Europe. Uh, a lot of these other countries, we have very little contact with, and we know there's massive uh, user bases there who are using Jupyter, and so we're starting uh, efforts to reach out and include those communities. So for example, uh, we recently have had some, some events uh, in South America. We're looking at a, a Jupyter conference next year in Spain. Uh, and so the, the diversity uh, along many different dimensions of the Jupyter community is a really important thing. Furthermore, uh, there's thousands of AWS customers that are using Jupyter today. And what's interesting about this is, uh, as you all know, an AWS customer does not always represent one user. Uh, we know there are some uh, organizations using Jupyter where there's 10,000 individual end users of Jupyter in that organization. And so even this, this number of uh, thousands of AWS customers using Jupyter there's a lot of questions there about, well, how many end users is that actually? Uh, also, uh, we know that there's today uh, around uh, 5 million public notebooks on GitHub. And GitHub is a, a common place for people to share code, and that includes notebooks. Let me give you an example of how a notebook uh, is used. This is a, a book, uh, Dive Into Deep Learning, that's come out of the uh, machine learning research groups uh, at AWS, Zhang, Lipton, Lee, Smola. Uh, and it is an open source book on deep learning. It's free. It's available on GitHub. And the entire content of the book is Jupyter Notebooks. I don't know the exact count, but I know there are hundreds of Jupyter Notebooks in this. The PDF that is auto-generated from the Jupyter Notebooks is 890 pages long. Now. This is just one among probably thousands of examples like this, where people are using Jupyter to write code, right? It is an environment in which end users are writing code, but also to do something more than just write code. They're telling stories. They're, they're building narratives using that code for different purposes. In this case, it's to teach people about deep learning. But there's a lot of other purposes that, that Jupyter Notebooks are used for beyond just writing and, and running code. And I think that's one of the, the key ideas uh, that we have. And so uh, I want to spend a few minutes staying a bit abstract, and then we're going to dive into some hands-on demos. And, and the reason I want to start at the abstract level is that there's been some really consistent ideas that have been present in Jupyter since the very beginning. And these ideas inform a lot of the decisions that we've made over the years about the user experience, about the architecture, and about how we build software. So what are the common threads uh, across all these different users and usage cases? Um, what do they have in common? And there's really three things. The first is code. Right? Our users, at some level, at some point in their work, are writing code or looking at code or running code. The second is data, right? It's the, uh, the type of code that our users are typically writing or working with involves data. It could be data generation through simulation. It could be uh, consuming data that, that's created through natural processes. Uh, and then also humans. And uh, I think this is the part that is really key, and that is we view Jupyter as a place where code and data and humans come and work together. And so this is really what, what informs the, the thinking about this. So what are a few of the ideas of Jupyter? The first is the idea of a computational narrative. The next is the idea of real-time thinking with the computer. And then the last is the idea of direct manipulation user interfaces that augment writing code. So first, idea of a computational narrative. 
Fernando Perez and myself wrote a grant proposal uh, about, I guess, almost six years ago now. Uh, and we spent a lot of time crafting language. And I still haven't found a better way to put it than the original grant proposal we, were, we wrote. So computers are good at consuming, producing, and processing data. Humans, on the other hand, process the world through narratives. I'll pause it there. If you doubt that we process the world through narratives, think about how we spend our time. Netflix, video games, reading, right? We think and communicate in terms of narratives. Thus, in order for data and the computations that process and visualize that data to be useful to humans, they must be embedded into a narrative, a computational narrative that tells a story for a particular audience and context. Right, so this is this, this idea of a computational narrative. What I want to do at this point, I'm going to switch over here and open a notebook to show you an example of what one of these notebook documents look like. So I'm running Jupyter Lab uh, on my laptop here. And this is one of the notebooks from this Dive Into Deep Learning uh, free uh, uh, course that's on GitHub. And again, the idea here is that, yes, there's code. Someone has written code, and you could run this code. But there's also a narrative around it, right? There's a narrative that, can, that is teaching you, in this case, about how to build, do linear regression from scratch uh, using MXNet uh, in this case. And that narrative uh, includes text. It's organized. Uh, there's equations here, just to convince you that uh, this is markdown. You can double click. I could edit that markdown. Uh, I can hit shift enter to re-render uh, re it. There's a visualization here. In this case, uh, uh, this notebook is using matplotlib to create uh, this visualization. Uh, and so there's, there's a full computational narrative, um, and we can run this code uh, live. All right, back over here to the presentation. Uh, let's see. I guess I miss, I jogged my, actually, I'm going to go here. So the second idea is the idea of real-time thinking with the computer. And uh, amazingly, the, the best description of this comes from a paper entitled, uh, the original title was Man-Computer Symbiosis. I'm updating it here to say Human-Computer Symbiosis uh, by uh, Licklitter uh, in 1960. So this is very early uh, in the history of computing, of user interfaces, and I love the vision here, and it really captures it well. So human-computer symbiosis is an expected development and cooperative interaction between humans and electronic computers. The main aims are to let computers facilitate formulative thinking as they now facilitate the solutions of formulated problems. And two, to enable humans and computers to cooperate in making decisions and controlling complex situations without inflexible dependence on predetermined programs. The idea here is that while the program is running, you're looking at what the program is doing. You're looking at the output. And then you're using that output to think in real time about a problem, make decisions, and then decide what, what subsequent computations you want to run, what code you want to write after that. So it's often called a human in the loop, uh, interactive computing. Um, and again, the, so I, I love this phrase, real time thinking, that was introduced in this original paper. And that really captures how Jupyter is used. Uh, Jupyter is not used for, for example, creating uh, web applications. Uh, it would be a horrible tool for that. And the idea there is there's no real-time thinking going on, at least at the level with data that, that Jupyter, uh, that happens when people are using Jupyter. Um, the last idea is that of direct manipulation interfaces. Uh, so this idea came uh, out of the human-computer interaction uh, research area, originally from Schneiderman and then later Hutchins, Holland, and Norman. Uh, I'm uh, here's one of the papers, one of the later papers. The idea here, uh, and you, you have to sort of set the stage coming out of the period where uh, there was punch cards, and then there was terminals, and then st people were starting to think about graphical user interfaces. The key idea is that objects behave as the, that if they are the objects themselves. So in other words, the objects in the computer behave as though they were the object in the real world. 
we're by now, we're sort of, we take this for granted. So touch interfaces on our phone, immersive VR, uh, programs like Illustrator Sketch, where you're looking at a rectangle and you can click the corner of the rectangle and drag it. Right? That's a great example. Uh, or Amazon QuickSight, where you can build visualizations without uh, writing code. Um, now, what's interesting here um, is that Jupyter is a tool for writing code. And, and, and so you may be wondering how exactly this, this picture fits in, right? And, and what I want to show you here um, is some examples that begin to, to give you a grasp uh, of how this has informed how we uh, program using Jupyter, but also how we've built Jupyter uh, itself. So let's go back to Jupyter Lab here. Um, so one, one simple example of this um, would be something like this. So up here, um, we're generating a synthetic data set, uh, basically something that we can do linear regression on. Um, and, and, and in some abstract space, we have a mental picture of what uh, data set that we would want to do linear, linear regression on might look like. Uh, we've got the code here. And so uh, a, a, an example of this idea that the, the object in the computer behaves like the real object is that uh, we can make a chart and see that object embedded in the notebook, right? The, the plot here, the chart here, is an example of something that helps us to see, like, okay, that chart, we would say, looks just like the mental model we have in our heads of the data set we'd like to do regression on. Another example here, uh, so this is a notebook that simulates the Lorenz differential equations. And uh, here's the differential equations. For those of you familiar with nonlinear systems, these uh, will be familiar. Let me go ahead and run uh, the notebook here. And there's a separate file that I'm importing here, Solve Lorenz, that uses, I think in this case, it's using SciPy to integrate the, the equations of motion. Um, but then there's this function, interactive. And, uh, solve Lorenz takes parameters, uh, sigma and rho, so sigma and rho in the differential equation, determine the behavior of the solutions of that differential equation. So let's go ahead and run this. Um, and what I get is an embedded user interface, right? And this embedded user interface, so again, remember, uh, there's a function solve Lorenz, and it has parameters uh, sigma, beta, and rho. Right? And so I'd like to call that function for different values of sigma, beta, and rho and visualize the result to understand what, what actually does this the solution of the differential equation look like. Um, and here I've got sliders and I can simply change the slider and this interactive function here is creating a two-way binding because between the UI controls here and that solve Lorenz function on the back end. So two-way binding between the JavaScript running in the front end and the Python code running in the back end. And each time we, I change the position of the slider, uh, it calls that function, regenerates the plot. This is a great example where, yes, I'm still writing code. Right? And this gets back to this idea of we don't want to replace the writing of code. Right? The best way to solve the Lorenz equation is by doing numerical integration. Yes, you can do really theoretical treatments to study the fixed, point, fixed points and so on, but at the end of the day, you're gonna wanna solve it numerically. So Jupyter is not an environment that's designed for you to stop writing code. It's an environment for you to write code, but then at certain times when you want to take your hands off the keyboard and think, again, real-time thinking, that we provide tools through direct manipulation and graphical user interfaces for, for you to accomplish that and for you to think, right? I can stop writing code at this point and I can ask really interesting questions of, okay, well, what, what is Rho doing? Okay, things are getting bigger as Rho, as I reduce Rho, it's getting smaller. Uh, what is beta doing? Okay, beta is seeming to change the, 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 the spirals in some way, they're closer together. It's really hard to get that when your brain is occupied with the details of coding that, right? All right, so I wanna spend a bit of time uh, talking about Jupyter's software. Uh, as I mentioned, Jupyter these days has a lot of software, um, and so uh, give you sort of a survey. First uh, is Jupyter Lab. 
Uh, Jupyter Lab is Jupyter's next generation notebook interface. Uh, the, as we call it now, the classic Jupyter notebook that uh, was derivative of the IPython notebook has been around since 2011. Um, Needless to say, the world of web application development in 2011 was an entirely different place. Uh, it, the classic notebook is written in jQuery primarily. I remember that Bootstrap came out around then and we said, you know, that's too, spe that's too crazy, too speculative. We better not take a risk on something that new. Um, obviously, things have changed wildly. Uh, it, one of the interesting things that, that motivated JupyterLab um, that was unexpected is that people quickly wanted to start to hack all of our JavaScript code to extend it and to do interesting things with it. And so one of the design goals in JupyterLab was extensibility. Uh, and I'll give you some examples of how that extensibility plays out. Um, it affects both how we wrote the software, but also how we built the user interface. And that is, once you enable people to add new code, to an interactive environment like this, they're going to want to render things on the screen. Right? And so you can see JupyterLab here is a screenshot, has a multi-panel, multi-tab layout system that's very flexible and allows extension authors to put content on the page uh, in, a, in a, a very flexible way. JupyterLab 1.0 was released in June 2019. Uh, as of the 1.0 release, JupyterLab is stable, both for end users and for uh, extension developers. Uh, JupyterLab is pretty mature at this point, over 16,000 commits and 250 contributors. Uh, that's already more than the classic notebook uh, in terms of, of commits. And so it's a fairly mature code base, even though 1.0 came out. Uh, the open source community, at least Jupyter, tends to be uh, overly conservative about calling things uh, 1.0. At this point, though, we've adopted a six-month six release schedule which means that JupyterLab 2.0 will be coming out here uh, in the next month, around the, the start of the year. Uh, so JupyterLab is flexible. As a user, you can configure and arrange the, the JupyterLab user interface to support a wide range of workflows in data science, scientific computing, and machine learning. And most importantly, JupyterLab is extensible. As a, as a developer, you can use JupyterLab's public TypeScript APIs, or jo plain JavaScript works as well, to write plugins that add new components and integrate with existing ones. And uh, we have embraced modern web development, and so a JupyterLab extension is just an NPM package with a small amount of metadata. So if you're familiar with building web applications with React or Angular, uh, you will find Jupyter to be a, a relatively familiar context in which to, to do development. And uh, something that is, uh, I think, very timely here uh, at AWS reInvent is that Amazon SageMaker Studio, which uh, was just announced this week here at the conference, is based on JupyterLab. And so I will also at the end here uh, be talking a little bit about Amazon SageMaker Studio. Uh, in what ways is it based on JupyterLab? How are we leveraging the flexibility, uh, the extensibility of JupyterLab uh, for machine learning in particular? So I'll, do, I'll spend a lot more time demoing JupyterLab a little bit further in the talk here. Another one of the big components uh, of Jupyter is JupyterHub. JupyterHub is a multi-user version of Jupyter designed for companies, classrooms, research collaborations, et cetera. Uh, it has an extensible authentication system, uh, an extensible uh, approach for launching the individual processes and servers that are individual users used. Um, JupyterHub is self-managed, and what I mean by that is that users and, and organizations using JupyterHub uh, typically have someone on staff that is managing the deployment. Uh, the most common way of deploying JupyterHub is through Kubernetes, and so there's a, a lot of these deployments running JupyterHub on Kubernetes. Um, and some of the larger deployments we know of, uh, again, are up towards 10,000 users uh, in a deployment. A second. <coughs> oh, I apologize, too many conversations today. Uh, Jupyter Hub is uh, also container friendly, um, and so hence why it integrates with uh, Kubernetes so well. Another one of our core projects is called Jupyter Widgets. 
And uh, I showed you an example a few minutes ago of, of a Jupyter widget uh, in the Lorenz notebook with the sliders. Uh, so the idea here is that uh, you often want, want to have lightweight user interface controls or widgets embedded in a notebook uh, with the property that uh, there's this bidirectional binding between objects that are living in uh, the kernel, so in Python or one of the other languages that are supported uh, by Jupyter, and then the front end uh, as well. Uh, here's an example uh, on the right-hand side of a map uh, UI control embedded in a notebook. Uh, I'll do a demo of something like this uh, later in the talk. Um, there's uh, the way that, to think about this is that you can pretty much embed arbitrary user interfaces uh, in a notebook that are b bound to Python or R or C, even C++ code in the back end. Um, the, what we find in practice uh, is that the limitations are more from a user experience perspective. Uh, given the nature that the, the Jupyter Notebook is a document, uh, embedding very heavyweight user interfaces in the notebook starts to become really awkward, and at some point people start to build full-blown Jupyter Lab extensions that could occupy their own dedicated uh, panel in the workspace. Uh, a really nice quote from the Jupyter Widgets readme on GitHub. Uh, Notebooks come alive when interactive widgets are used. Users gain control of their data and can visualize changes in the data. Learning becomes an immersive, fun experience. Researchers can see how changing inputs to a model impacts the results. Another uh, actually brand new addition to the Jupyter family is a project called Voila. Voila started uh, by, was started by Sylvain Corlet, who's on the Jupiter Steering Council, uh, and he started as a separate project, but with a full intent to eventually uh, contribute to Jupiter. And the idea of Voila is that it turns a Jupiter notebook into a standalone web application or dashboard. Um, the, but here, the, the word dashboard, I think, is even, doesn't fully capture it. Um, Voila actually has a templating system underneath, so the, the way the cells in a notebook get mapped to the uh, final web page or web application uh, is very, very flexible and may not look at all like what we think in our minds to be a dashboard. It could, for example, be a slideshow presentation and you know, more like a traditional PowerPoint-style presentation where the cells in the notebook get mapped to slides. <coughs> uh, sorry. The flow here is that uh, as a user, you would author notebook uh, with all the traditional things, so markdown, equations, charts, tables, uh, Jupyter widgets, and then simply run at the terminal, voila, at the name of the notebook. That uh, then launches the voila web application and, and opens the uh, dashboard or web application uh, in the browser. There's also a Jupyter Lab extension that puts a button in the notebook toolbar where you can click on it and it will open the dashboard. I'll, I'll demonstrate that here in a few minutes. Um, configurability, I think, is, is interesting here. Um, so uh, a, a lot of the, the reason that, that the community has been interested in dashboarding is that notebooks are often authored by one audience and then consumed by another, and the consumers don't necessarily want to look at code uh, all the time or even at all. And so the default setting in Voila is to hide the code in these dashboards, which makes it really easy to generate documents, dashboards, and so on that were, were authored in, in a language like Python, but then uh, generate the dashboard without the code there. Um, another point, um, it's sort of embedded here, is the security. Um, so Jupyter is a web application whose primary feature is arbitrary code execution. And if, you, if it's your job to wear a security hat in your organization, <laughs> immediately you should say, whoa, hold on a second. Um, that is the primary feature. What this means is in enterprise deployments, security is a, a non-trivial question, right? And so this is something I'll, I'll, I'll address later in the context of Amazon SageMaker Studio. What's interesting about Vola is it has a more restrictive execution model that does not allow arbitrary code execution. So you can write one of these dashboards in a notebook where you can write any code you want, but then deploy it in a context 
where the, the, the people using that dashboard, all they can do is uh, whatever you have chosen to let them do, not run arbitrary code. Um, and voila actually was just merged into Jupyter, I want to say about a month ago. I suppose time flies and it could be two months ago, but it's a quite recent addition um, and it uh, is quite spectacular. I've had a lot of fun uh, playing with it here uh, recently. So uh, I'm going to show you an example, just a, a quick screencast of voila. I guess I have to go into play. All right. So here's a notebook, um, and it has some Jupyter widgets. There's a slider, a text box, some Python code. Um, you can see the slider coupled to the tech output of the text box. Um, here's the Iris data set as a pandas data frame. Drop out into the command line, voila, basics, the name of the notebook, and it will launch the web application. And voila. I'm also, the, the name is also fantastic. Uh, someone gets a lot of credit for that. So immediately you get a web application. Notice the code is all gone. Uh, arbitrary code execution is not, so po not possible. Um, what's interesting, though, is the <coughs> there is a live Jupyter kernel running behind that web application with a restricted execution model. And so uh, the one you see the, in the web application or the dashboard version moving the slider, it is still, still calling into a Jupyter kernel. Um, and so it, it's a very, very nice, lightweight way to build uh, these interactive dashboards. Another thing that, that we've built uh, in Jupyter, underneath these sort of uh, user-focused uh, applications are open standards for interactive computing. What do I mean by this? Um, first is the Jupyter Notebook format. The Jupyter Notebook format is an open document format. Jupyter Notebooks are JSON documents. And uh, they can be created programmatically, rendered in a number of different user interfaces. Uh, it's not just JupyterLab. There's the classic notebook. Uh, there's Interact. Jupyter Notebooks are rendered in situ on GitHub. Uh, and so it's an open, open format uh, for interactive computing. And, and it's worth noting this document format includes both the source code, but also the rich output, these widgets, visualizations, markdown, uh, and so on. Uh, next is the Jupyter message specification. Uh, and this is a, a JSON-based network protocol over WebSockets and ZeroMQ that's used for the front end to talk to the kernels uh, on the server side that are running the code. And then there's also the Jupyter Notebook server, uh, which has a set of WebSocket uh, and HTTP APIs uh, for access to, th to things like the terminal uh, and uh, the file system. <laughs> oh, sorry about the cough. Um, and there's a lot more in the, the Jupyter, uh, under the Jupyter umbrella. So there's IPython, which is the Python kernel for Jupyter, as well as the interactive uh, Python shell uh, at the terminal. NBConvert is a tool that allows you to convert Jupyter notebooks to different formats. Uh, HTML, PDF, Markdown, uh, actually voila uses uh, NBConvert as well. There's Jupyter Book for turning uh, collections of Jupyter Notebooks into books. Uh, there's Kernel Gateway and Enterprise Gateway that enable people deploying Jupyter to run kernels uh, in different ways. So run them in a distributed manner or in a remote manner. And then there's uh, other, other GitHub uh, open source projects that are not formally part of Jupyter, but that are a part of the overall uh, ecosystem. So one of these is Interact. Uh, Interact has a fantastic library uh, for taking a notebook and parametrizing that notebook by something in it and then rerunning it across different values of those parameters. That's Papermill. And then there's also a, another alternative uh, user interface for working with notebook documents called Inter, uh, Interact, their front end. Uh, Zeus is a C++ library for authoring Jupyter kernels and also a Kling-based interactive C++ kernel. 
I'll, I'll give you a demo of that right now. All right, so at this point, I'm gonna hop back over here uh, to Jupyter Lab. Let's see, can everyone see that? All right, so uh, the first thing I wanna show you, let's take up all of the screen. Um, it, it's some of the basics of, of working Jupyter Lab. So again, you'll notice uh, I'm in Firefox here, so Jupyter is a web application. Uh, this is uh, not by coincidence. Um, the, the architecture of Jupyter is built for uh, cloud computing, where the data and the compute that needs to operate on that data is likely not where the human is, right? Uh, all of us tend to carry around our laptops, um, and our, yes, our laptop sometimes has the code or the data, but often it, it's not, it's somewhere else. It's in an S3 bucket, the computer's on EC2. And so uh, the, the whole architecture of Jupyter is oriented towards this, uh, this universe. And so Jupyter itself, Jupyter Lab here, is a web application. What I want to give you a sense, though, um, is that the mental model, and, and I think the right mental model for Jupyter Lab is that of an operating system. What do I mean by that? So here in the left uh, panel, I have a file browser, right? And so I can uh, hop around here. Uh, you can see uh, this is actually a bunch of Git repos I have checked out. The file system here is actually the file system on my laptop. There's no special file system database or something. It is an actual file system. Uh, there's a JupyterLab demo uh, repo that, that I'll be working in. Uh, you can see things in, in the data folder here. I can also go here and click on plus. This is the launcher. It's where you create new notebooks. Uh, click on terminal. And what I want to show you here, uh, so I've got a full-blown terminal, and, um, oh, that's right. So I don't know if anyone caught it. OS X has added terminal sessions that remember things about your last terminal state, and there's currently some weird interactions between the terminal state in OS, in Mac OS, and Jupyter. Um, so uh, the reason I'm saying that is the directory that this should open in should match, but let me just go in here. Sorry. Um, and so what I'm doing here is showing you the files that I see in the terminal are exactly the same files that I'm seeing in the, the file browser here. So I can go over to the Jupyter Lab demo. Uh, CD data, oops, sorry data, and here's those files, right? So again, I said that a useful mental model is to think about this as a, an operating system, right? Where the, you get a consistent picture of the universe. There's some underlying computer, in this case it's my laptop, uh, running in the cloud. That could be an EC2 instance. Um, and then furthermore, uh, if I create a notebook in this directory, um, I can also see that the, the view of the universe that the notebook has matches that as, as well, right? And so the, this consistency between all the different parties in, in the system is a really key attribute. We're not doing anything to hide the operating, the underlying operating system or file system from you. It's the real deal. So in the terminal there, uh, you can run any terminal application you want, right? It is a, it is a real terminal and access the real file system. Um, so uh, next thing, so there's notebooks, uh, there's terminals, there's a file browser. In addition to the individual components, uh, I mentioned this sort of flexibility of JupyterLab. Um, so you can collapse the, the left panel, uh, collapse and expand it, see the different things that you have running. Uh, there's a command palette. Um, but then also in the main work area, you can subdivide uh, this in, in arbitrary uh, ways. So I, I might want to see the outline of the demo I'm going to do and then have a terminal here uh, next to a notebook. Um, and th this, again, this flexibility is a key part of it that's related to the extensibility uh, of JupyterLab. All right. So let's go here. So what I want to do is show you the running things. 
Um, so here's this linear regression notebook that we saw. Um, and uh, I'm going to go up here and uh, run all cells. You can see here that circle filled in, so it's running all the code. Um, another thing to point out, um, you can see here the currently selected cell type. If I select here, I see a code uh, cell. Um, basic operations on uh, uh, cells. All right, so this is, this is finished running. There's not anything particularly interesting, uh, not much changed, obviously, uh, but we ran this code. Uh, in this case, we're doing linear regression um, with a, a squared loss, um, and then you can see we're actually going through uh, training a simple model to, to do linear regression. Um, but let's say I wanted to present this to someone uh, without the code, right? I wanted to use it more like a dashboard or a presentation. This button right here, uh, you probably can't see the, the tooltip there. It says rendered with voila. I click that, opens in a new panel. Voila, then pre-runs the notebook. Again, in this panel, arbitrary code execution is not possible. There's a different server architecture going on. And then you can see we have a notebook. Uh, there's the output still, the visualizations, the text output. Uh, but no longer the code, right? And I could drop into the terminal and type voila, the name of that notebook, and it would open in a separate browser tab, or you could then use it uh, to, to deploy that web application in a container uh, or something like that. Um, oh, another thing that is worth showing you uh, is the table of contents. Um, so uh, notebooks become large documents, uh, and our users use Markdown, headings to organize those documents. And so we have a table of contents here. Uh, so you can navigate the notebook through the table of contents. Uh, you can pick uh, which types of uh, content appears here in the table of contents. So you can add markdown. Uh, you can add the code. Uh, so it's a, a very nice way to, to navigate these uh, documents. OK, close without saving, table of contents. Um, let's go over here show you another example uh, from Voila. So here's a notebook that uses the BQplot library. Uh, BQplot is an open source uh, charting library that uses Jupyter widgets to provide rich interactivity in Jupyter notebooks. Um, and uh, actually, rather than running this here, let's, let's just create this as a dashboard so you can see the result of running it in a, in a nice, clean way. Um, so uh, obviously there's a data set here uh, that has a histogram and a, a line chart. Um, what's uh, nice about uh, BQplot, and again, it's using the Jupyter widget framework underneath, is that it supports interactive charts that, again, are, are, are bound back to the Python code. What this means is I can pick uh, an interval of a chart here, and that's absolutely, uh, doing some subsetting on the, the, the data values that are being uh, binned for the histogram. And, and, and the thing that I want to em emphasize here is uh, as an end user, I don't need to know anything about JavaScript to do this. Right? I can work in Python, work with the data set, work with the tools and libraries that I'm used to, but build these rich applications uh, to let me explore the data as I'm working, but also to hand it off to other people who want to explore the results of what I've done understand it, make decisions, but probably not look at the code all the time, at least. Um, so there's that. Uh, another So actually, uh, this is a really simple example um, uh, of Jupyter widgets. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time uh, talking through how this works. Um, and how it gets back to this idea uh, of direct manipulation user interfaces and that objects should behave as the objects themselves. Um, so we're importing some UI controls from I, uh, IPy widgets, and we're creating two sliders, um, and then we're defining a function that takes the value of A and B and prints A, B, and A times B. Um, and then we're using this interactive output uh, function uh, and then uh, tie it together in a V-box and an H-box to do a little bit of layout. Um, and, and the thing that I want to emphasize here is that the Jupyter architecture 
uh, has a, an abstract output system. Uh, and so, or sometimes we'll call it a rich output system. What does that mean? Uh, you're all familiar, or, or a lot of you will be familiar with that most programming languages allow uh, you to print text to standard out or standard error, right? So we're familiar with text-based output. Jupyter has extended that notion of output to include arbitrary MIME types, right? What do I mean by a MIME type? So a MIME type would be HTML, PNGs, JPEGs, uh, and we've even extended that MIME type notion to include additional MIME types that, that have been defined in the Jupyter community. So this int slider Python object here has a method on it that knows how to produce this rich output that is sent as JSON to the front end, and the front end knows, ah, I know what to do with this MIME type, I know how to render it. And so it's a direct reflection of this idea that there's an underlying object that lives in, in the Python world, in the code world, but we've built this rich output architecture so that the people who write that object can build a visual representation that matches how users want to think about and work with that, uh, that model. All right, so um, I want to show you a little bit more um, about uh, a more advanced case of a Jupyter widget. So this is using uh, a library that sits on top of Jupyter widgets called IPyLeaflet. Leaflet is a uh, interactive mapping uh, library for JavaScript. And so we've built tools. Um, so here is uh, a uh, uh, Turopleth map. Uh, I don't remember. I guess it's looking at uh, uh, the color here is encoding uh, unemployment in the state. Um, now, this is a, an interactive map. Uh, I can zoom, I can pan. Um, but there's an actual object in Python right here that represents this map, and I can work with that object in Python, and the visual representation will update. So what I'm gonna do here is, let's uh, create new view for output, and then I'm gonna put this side by side with this so I can actually see uh, the notebook, scroll the notebook on the left and see the map on the right. Um, so uh, here we're creating a, a float uh, slider. And then we're actually uh, basically taking a slice of the, va the unemployment values. And so as I move this slider, I'm actually updating the Python map object. And because it has the, it's tied into this rich output uh, system that we have, the map automatically updates. Right? So I, I have multiple objects in Python talking to each other and updating. And also, the view in the, here in the notebook is also updating. Right? Everything's synchronized. You can have multiple views synchronized with the underlying Python code on the server side. Uh, so there's a, a couple other color maps here, um, and then we can actually assign one of the color maps, and you can see the color map change, and then I can go back here uh, and, and play with the slider with that new color map. Um, we can change the border colors, um, and so there, there's an underlying data model here for a map that includes all these different layers and, and uh, visual attributes of the chart. You can bind that to data uh, and build arbitrary things. So uh, for those of you who need rich interactive mapping, great. But there's an underlying story here, and that is whatever your domain is, you can build Python libraries and extensions to Jupyter to do this for your, your favorite domain. One of my favorite stories is that we were at a conference, I guess, two years ago, the SciPy conference, and there was a grad student that came uh, who was in uh, bioinformatics. And this student had, was writing Python but had never written a line of JavaScript before. And the, the student said, like, I would love it if Jupyter had support for FASTA files. Because FASTA is a file format used in bioinformatics. And he found a JavaScript library that could produce a visual rendering of FASTA, and in a single afternoon, wrote a JupyterLab extension so that uh, it could render uh, FASTA files uh, in notebooks and uh, as standalone files. And so even if you don't, you don't need interactive mapping, per se, uh, the, the extensibility of this architecture will enable you to plug into it uh, in rich ways. 
So I want to show you. So another thing we have, um, we have built-in support for a range of different file formats. Um, so here's an image. Uh, Vega Lite is a, a, a visualization tool uh, and grammar that we're using a lot. Um, what I want to show you here is, so I have the, the same file open in multiple viewers at the same time. Right, here's the JSON declaration of this bar chart. And I can go down here and say, you know, I, I don't think it's a bar chart that I want. I want a point chart, and it will automatically update. Right? And so there's multiple views sitting on top of the same data model. Um, what's fantastic about this is it works for any file format. So for example, um, let's go back one level. And here's a markdown file. I can right-click, show markdown preview, and then I can edit this. Uh, we're not doing it on every, on every keystroke. That causes the view to be really jittery, so we wait. I think our delay is a second or two. It will re-render. Um, what's fantastic about this is we didn't build a live down, markdown previewer. Actually, we had this feature for probably a month or two before we realized it worked. Um, what we've built is an underlying architecture that has these abstractions in place. Um, so I'm going to jump back to my slides, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, Jupyter and AWS. Uh, so Jupyter, again, is a multi-stakeholder, community-driven open source project. Uh, it's part of the NumFocus uh, nonprofit open source foundation. Uh, and there's thousands of AWS customers, as I said, using Jupyter. What this means is that uh, AWS customers and the broader Jupyter community will benefit as AWS helps to make Jupyter a fantastic open source project for data science and machine learning and a vibrant and healthy open and sustainable open source project. So how are we approaching this at AWS? Through three things, contributing, sponsoring, and building. On the contribution side, uh, we're focused on healthy and sustainable contributions to Jupyter, alongside in collaboration with other Jupyter stakeholders. The Amazon SageMaker team in AWS has two Jupyter Steering Council members. I'm one of them. Steven Sylvester is the other. And there's a number of other uh, individuals in the SageMaker team who are also contributing to Jupyter. We're active across a number of different projects. Uh, right now, we're focusing on Jupyter Lab the Git extension for Jupyter Lab, the Jupyter Server, Notebook, Kernel Gateway. Um, myself and Steve Sylvester have worked across uh, most of the project over time. Um, and we're actively hiring people to contrib contribute to Jupyter. So if you're interested, uh, please come talk to us. Uh, second, so first is contribute, second is sponsor. So we're pleased to announce uh, that as of about a month ago, AWS is a, a platinum sponsor of Jupyter and NumFocus. Um, this donation is focused right now on the Jupyter Community Workshops, which enable small groups of, of people in the Jupyter community to come together and work on a, on a focused topic. So for example, last year we had a Jupyter Community Workshop on dashboarding. And so people interested in Vola came together, worked on that. We found these workshops to be a very effective way of growing the developer community and helping the project to uh, innovate. Um, you may not be familiar with NumFocus. Again, it's a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh, it is the uh, nonprofit umbrella to a lot of open source projects that you're probably familiar with. So NumPy, SciPy, Pandas, Matplotlib, Jupyter, the, the Julia programming language, OpenSci, Stan, MathJax, Bokeh, uh, and so on. And so AWS, we're sponsoring both uh, Jupyter and then also because Jupyter is part of NumFocus, sponsoring NumFocus as well. Third component of this is build. AWS is building project, uh, products for enterprise Jupyter users. Uh, and this week, uh, AWS, we're pleased to announce uh, on Tuesday in the main keynote, Amazon SageMaker Studio. Amazon SageMaker Studio is the first fully integrated development environment, or IDE, for machine learning, data science, uh, and it delivers automation, integration, debugging, and monitoring for the development uh, and deployment of machine learning models. Uh, the real punchline of this talk 
is that Amazon SageMaker Studio is based on both JupyterLab, but also the underlying Jupyter uh, architecture. Uh, SageMaker Studio offers a number of different features that will help organizations uh, that are using Jupyter at scale. Uh, so there's SSO integration to manage, uh, to easily manage users. Uh, you can run individual notebooks and terminals on different instances. So if you start on one instance in a, in a notebook and then realize, oh, I need more RAM, uh, there's a dropdown and you can change the instance type. Same works for terminals. Uh, there's a home directory that's automatically mounted across all of the different uh, instances you're on. Remember I was talking about the consistency of Jupyter, that you see the same files in the file browser, the terminal, and notebooks. The same is true in SageMaker Studio, even though the compute is spread, spread across multiple instances. Uh, there's also notebook sharing, uh, and it's a fully managed system, uh, so you don't have to think about managing instances and VPCs and all of those things. Uh, it's, it's very easy to get started. <coughs> so um, here's a screenshot of a SageMaker Studio. And uh, you're probably thinking, well, that looks pretty different. Well, some similarities with JupyterLab. What I want to do is come back over here, and then here is SageMaker Studio. And to convince you that it is JupyterLab, I'm just going to go back here uh, and change back to the JupyterLab light theme, and it's JupyterLab. Right? <laughs> um, and we're really proud of this at AWS on the SageMaker team. Uh, and uh, the, uh, let me go back to the dark theme. Uh, so in SageMaker Studio, uh, I'm really short on time, so I'm not gonna have a lot, uh, any time to do big demos. This button right here allows you to uh, share a notebook, get a link that you can email to people and share it with. Um, and then there's additional uh, uh, tabs over here. Uh, so for right here, uh, this is for your machine learning experiments. So for example, if you're using SageMaker Autopilot, which is our AutoML uh, solution, all of the different uh, models that Autopilot tries will appear uh, grouped here by experiment. And you can dive into the different machine learning experiments. Uh, there's a tab here for endpoints for machine learning models that you've deployed. Um, and uh, again, I don't have time to actually dive into examples and use this. What I wanna emphasize though here is that uh, all of the machine learning functionality we've built for Amazon SageMaker Studio is just another JupyterLab extension, right? What this means is that maybe you're working in a space where there's additional functionality and additional extensions that you'd want to build in JupyterLab. You'll be able to come into Amazon SageMaker and Studio and install those alongside the machine learning extensions that we've built. Right? And that's the power of an open extensible architecture built on top uh, of AWS like this. Um, let's see. So other things that are in a, uh, Amazon SageMaker Studio, uh, there's obviously notebooks. I mentioned there's these, uh, there's, uh, we call it SageMaker experiments for tracking multiple, uh, uh, basically your experiments with machine learning models that span uh, either uh, AutoML or hyperparameter optimization. Uh, there's model debugging. So as you're training the models, uh, you can collect uh, metrics, hyperparameters, um, and then understand how and when and where those models are failing in some way and have both a code-driven interface but also a graphical interface in JupyterLab. And then the, there's the model monitor that allows you to de uh, deploy the models and then monitor them in production to, de to detect things like uh, drift. And again, getting back to one of the, key, the core ideas of Jupyter, this idea of uh, we don't want you to stop writing code. We want to make you more productive in writing code by augmenting code-driven interaction with these graphical user interfaces. And we've, we're using that idea extensively here in SageMaker Studio as well. And I also want to emphasize that all of the things we're building, whether it's the experiment management, the model debugging, uh, there's deep bi-directional integration with notebooks. So when you train a, 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 an automatic machine learning model in autopilot, we produce a notebook that you can open to dive into that model at a, at a deeper level. And the same is true of the other parts, such as uh, monitoring uh, and debugging as well. 
with that, uh, actually, I guess I have a couple screenshots to show in the last 12 seconds. Um, so here's uh, an example, uh, another example in SageMaker Studio. Um, here on the right, on the left, you can see a notebook open. On the right, you can see two panels that are open uh, that where uh, this example is showing the debugger that we have, the model uh, debugger. Um, and with that, thank you very much. <laughs>